We are back in Mark's Gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are called Gospels, good news texts. They are historical accounts of the life and teachings of Jesus. Mark has the shortest one. And Mark's Gospel is very, very fast-paced. What Mark does is he collapses a huge amount of stories and condenses them so that we have kind of a Reader's Digest view of, of Jesus' life. And it's a lot of Jesus' life, not a lot of his teachings. Mark presents Jesus as a man of action. His gospel is very fast-paced. You can read through it in about an hour and a half to an hour and 45 minutes, depending on your reading speed. He's presenting this king who's coming to establish his kingdom to overthrow the existing kingdoms of oppression, darkness, um, uh, subjugation, slavery, uh, brokenness, sinfulness. Mark presents this king who at every turn is slowly revealing and unfolding this kingdom of God. It's an alternative kingdom. Everyone knew what the kingdoms of men looked like. They were power over uh, kingdoms. This king is bringing a different kind of kingdom. It's not power over. It's power from under. It's, it's a kingdom that lifts up, that, that empowers, that leads to healing, not oppression, leads to hope, not hopelessness. And one of the things that you've seen about Mark, certainly in the first chapter, is Mark doesn't talk a lot of, doesn't share a lot of details about Jesus' life, which is really ironic because in the passage this morning, Mark has a huge amount of details about the story. In fact, Matthew and Luke, the other gospel writers, they record the story as well, but Mark includes more details in this story than Matthew does in his account. Matthew doesn't even talk about the roof thing happening. Mark has more details. So that's a bit of a tip-off to me that Mark understood in this story something really, really important. He puts it very close to the start of his gospel. And he, although he kind of brushes over other stories, remember, Jesus went into the wilderness and got tempted. And then he did something else. He brushes over that. But this story, Mark is like, oh, we've got we to draw this out a little bit. This is one of the longer accounts that Mark has in his gospels of an encounter with Jesus. It's not hurried through like some of the other ones. So we need to pay attention to it. So I'm going to teach through it. And then I think there are six questions that emerge out of this text that I think God would put in front of us today. So we're going to start in verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So I just want to give you a sense of what's going on here. So if you look at the land of Israel, we'll put up a map here. And Capernaum is located in Galilee, which is a northern province. Can we throw up the, the, uh, the map, Greg? It's coming. It's going to be so... Oh, wasn't it worth the wait? Look at that. So you got Israel, and then uh, you ha kind of have Judea, Samaria, and then Galilee. In the, in the big, bold text, Galilee's north. It's a province. And then if we zoom in a little bit more, we go to the next slide, uh, right on the edge of the Sea of, of Galilee, kind of on the northwest, you have Chorazin that's really north, and then you have Capernaum. And this is the place where when Jesus uh, moves from his early life in Nazareth, which is kind of west in Galilee, and he moves to Capernaum, this is where Jesus settles for, we're not exactly sure for how long, but for a lot of his adult life. And he makes Capernaum his home base for the first year, year and a half, scholars think of his ministry. He's not kind of traveling all over and just kind of staying wherever. For the first part of his ministry, for the first half, he kind of, goes out from Capernaum, goes around, and then he comes back to Galilee and kind of rests up. And it says here that a few days later, Jesus comes back to Capernaum after he's done some teaching, and the people heard that he had come home. That's kind of important. It's kind of a neat little thing here. The Greek word that's used for home is oikos. It means home. It doesn't mean hometown. It means actual house. 
So this has kind of people divided. We, um, half scholars say this is pretty good textual evidence that Jesus had an actual home, at least early in his ministry, maybe not later, but certainly early on, which you'll talk about in small groups if this whole story about some guy busting into Jesus' roof changes that story for you. But I'm going to throw that out there because it is a very legitimate interpretation. Some people are like, hey, isn't that that scripture where Luke says, Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head? And you're like, absolutely. That happens way late in the timeline of Jesus' life. And at that point, it's very likely that Jesus would have sold or given away a lot of his possessions because he's moving to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to die. He still needs ministry to be fueled financially. But there's no reason why an adult Jewish male would be... Uh, homeless, there'd be no reason for that to happen. So we're likely, I I would say, I I did a lot of reading on it, I think the evidence is good that this is probably Jesus' home. If it wasn't, it was definitely the place that he identified as home. This is his home. He gets to come here and relax after he's done preaching, after he's teaching, after he's healed. This is the place where he gets to go and unwind and relax. Turn on Netflix, watch a quality show, and just kind of decompress from the pressures of, of ministry. Verse 2, it says, um, so, so many gathered there at his home that there was no room left, not even outside the door. People were crushing the space. First century home, maybe you can get 50, 55 people in a home, about half the size of this room, so maybe 50, 60 people standing. Doors being crushed, people are outside, you can't, people are trying to peer over other people. We find out in uh, Matthew's account, I think, that there are, and we'll see it here, but Matthew says earlier on that there's Pharisees and teachers of the law here from Jerusalem. That's, again, about a two, three-week journey, so people have come a long way to kind of check Jesus out. The religious authorities have heard about him, what's going on in Galilee. They want to kind of vet this guy, understand his teachings, test him a little bit, make sure he's the real deal. And um, it says, some men, verse 3, came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Now, this is one of those little details that I'm like, I just let my mind wander with it because it, it, it builds the drama of the story. Uh, we don't know where these guys are from. You, we might think, hey, maybe it's Capernaum, maybe just two blocks you know, down this alley, over three houses, and they just carried this guy there, but we don't know. It could have been days. It could have been weeks. The story is more dramatic if you draw it out as days and weeks, so let's do that. Th- these guys have carried their friend in a way that is not easy. There's, there's no wheelchairs in the first century. It says the guy has a mat. They're probably carrying him on some kind of sheet or bed, um, bed sheet, some cloth, and four corners, and they've carried him a, a long way. And it says uh, uh, that uh, since they couldn't get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus after digging through it, lowered the mat that the paralyzed man was on. So Jesus is teaching, he's preaching the word to people. They've come, remember, Mark tells us in chapter 1, not really to hear his teachings. Like the kingdom of God stuff's kind of good, but they want a miracle. These are desperate people who are coming because they want miracles. And they're crushing Jesus' space. They're invading his, what we would say is his his private life, his personal life. They're, They're infringing on this kind of sacred home boundary because they want a miracle. So he's teaching, and imagine this, you know, you kind of hear some rustling. First century homes are square, and they have a flat roof, uh, grass, some clay, some sticks as a roof, and then there's digging, you know, Jesus is teaching, and then, like, debris starts falling on his head, 
and everyone kind of stops, like, what's going on? Then like, a hole gets uh, mashed in this, the roof that's at least big enough to, to lower this guy down. And their friends are huffing and puffing. They just had to hoist him onto the roof, get around the crowds, kind of scale on each other's backs, however they got up there. Now they're lowering him down, and, and they put him right before Jesus. And this is a picture of what Jewish people call chutzpah, which is passionate, bold, uh, um, daring action. When, when you see someone do something like this, where they look around and they're like, there doesn't seem to be a way in. We can't get him close to Jesus. Let's just bust down the roof. Okay. And they just do it. That's, that's chutzpah. That's a real, that, that's, a, that's kind of, that's not in the playbook. Uh, both in terms of hospitality. It's not your home. And and I think Mark wants us to read as we go through the story. Imagine our mind's eye. Imagine this is happening. Imagine you're over at someone's house and someone who didn't own the house is like somehow had a ladder and is broken in a window upstairs or busting through drywall and are coming through and it's, it's awkward. And, and Mark wants us to be thinking, as you imagine the scene playing out in your mind's eye, like, what, what are people thinking? What is Jesus thinking? What is he going to say? What are people going to say? And they've got everyone's attention. This is not subtle. Jesus is teaching. His teaching gets interrupted. And now everyone's just kind of seeing this guy. I, I always picture it in my mind's eye that, that it's just like an awkward, dead silence. Like, people are like, He's laid is just there in front of Jesus, and now people are like, "Oh, this is super awkward. What, what do we do? What, what, what's, what's going to happen?" And verse five, such a cool verse. It says, "When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, "Son, your sins are forgiven.'" Rewind the scene a little bit in your head. These guys have carried this guy, who knows how long, their paralyzed friend. They get there. There's clear logistical challenges to getting their friend to Jesus. They come up with a daring plan to get them in a lot of trouble, likely going to cost them money if they're going to have to repair anything. Climb up onto a roof, hoist their friend up onto a roof, bash down a, a roof, lower their friend through it so he's right in front of the rabbi. They, they jump the queue. There's this whole line of other people who want to get healed. They somehow think that their friend's case is more urgent than other people. So they, they, they do this act. The, the four guys are on the roof. They've lowered down. It's awkward. It's weird. The friend's lying there paralyzed right before Jesus, and Jesus says, sons, your, your, your sins are forgiven. And the guys on the roof are like, You know, like I, I picture one guy looking at it like, you know, Bill, <laughs> this is awkward. I don't know what to say. We didn't bring the guy here to get his sins forgiven. This, is, this becomes incredibly awkward all of a sudden. And I picture when Jesus says that, that he just stops. That's it. And everyone just kind of stops. And it's really uncomfortable because the guy's paralyzed. And Jesus heals, and he has the power to heal. And likely he has been healing. And then, no, he can't heal. What do you mean his sins are forgiven? And that's great. 
we'll take it. But <laughs> what else you got? Because our, we, didn't, we didn't travel all this way to get our sins forgiven. We traveled this way because our friend had an immediate, urgent need. And that need was that for who knows how long he hasn't been able to walk. How disappointing. What's the wave of disappointment that you imagine going over those guys when they're looking down after all their work to get their friend to Jesus? What's the disappointment that you imagine washing over the actual man who's been told there actually is real hope? Not like wishful thinking. Like there's actually someone who could touch you and you could walk. Do whatever it takes. I'll pay whatever amount. Just get me in front of that person. Now he's there. Your, sin, your sins are forgiven. Well, am I... Like that's it? Imagine the confusion that would, it would, have, would have happened. What's going on here? Jesus doesn't deal with the, with the presenting issue. The presenting, obvious, urgent need is this man cannot walk. He's paralyzed, which means in a first century context, 98% of life is not open to him. It's just, it's a huge amount of work just for basic survival. What's going on? And see, this is why Jesus is so, so brilliant. This is why you have to just let the gospel, be in the gospel, be reading it again and again and again. Because there are all these turns that teach us so much about Jesus and his priority and what it looks like and and what it means to really understand his message about this coming kingdom. See, Jesus, Mark wants us to see that ironically... Jesus does deal with the presenting problem. Everyone else says, oh, this is awkward. This is not, like, we know how the script's supposed to play out. This isn't actually the, you're supposed to overcome the the darkness and the evil and get the guy up. And Jesus says, oh, I am overcoming the darkness and the evil. I'm actually addressing the most urgent need. It's not the most obvious one. It's not the one that presents itself. Everybody else in this room thinks this is the capital U urgent need, but Jesus says, no, that's not actually not it. Jesus performs a great healing, but everyone doesn't recognize it. Everyone's kind of like, well, when's a healing going to happen? When's the good thing kick in? Because we wouldn't, no one says it there, and no one would say it today, and, it, and the longer you've been in the church, you know it's not the right answer, so you might never admit it uh, publicly or in a small group. You, um, but we kind of believe that like having our sins forgiven, totally good. Thank you. That's great. But if I could be restored completely in this area of my life, if I could have full healing here, that would be better. Complete spiritual healing, of course, great, good. Even better though, if I could have my eye healed, if I could have this chronic pain taken away, if I could have this issue uh, at work completely done away with, if I could be completely restored, I mean, I'd like, forgiveness of sins, it's great. It's just, and I appreciate Jesus for that, and I love Jesus for that, but could Jesus, like, practically help me? Because that would be super awesome. And I would go from, like, yay to, like, yes! If, if he could do more than just take away my sin. 
But Jesus wants us to see that our biggest issue, our biggest disease, our biggest illness, our biggest paralysis, the thing that's actually keeping us locked into our own enslavement is sin. Because sin, remember, at its ultimate level, it it pulls us, it, it disconnects us from the source of life and power and hope, and that is God. So sin is actually the biggest presenting issue. Sin separates us from our relationship with God here and now. It interferes with our ability to live the good life, as God defines it. And then later, after we die, it interferes with our ability to stay connected with God for all eternity. So from a human point of view, it might seem like secondary. Like, that's kind of neat, but like, oh man, if I could walk again, if I could see again, if I could hear again, if I could be reinvigorated with youthful, youthful vitality, that would, be, that would be the real miracle. That would be the real healing God says, no, actually, if you could see what I see, if you saw eternity past to eternity future, if you saw the whole picture, if all Jesus would have done in this encounter is say, son, your sins are forgiven, but if we would have seen it from God's point of view, people would have been like, this is amazing, let's throw a party for the still paralyzed guy, let's celebrate, it's awesome, the most important thing has happened, his, he has new relationship with God, which allows him to move into a new kind of life here and now and for eternity. There would have been tons of cause for celebration if Jesus had done nothing more. But notice, no one's reacting with any kind of awe or amazement. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, which are powerful, and as we're going to find out in a second, actually dangerous words to say, and everyone's kind of like, yes, like, and... At the end of the story, it says that people celebrate and they're amazed and they start praising God. No one's praising God yet because he's just forgiven them his sins. But where's like the, where the fireworks? Where's like the real miracle? See, Jesus is trying to show people what you think your problem is isn't necessarily a problem. It might be a problem, but we all have a capital P problem and that is sin. And that's what I've come to deal with. I haven't come just to heal you so that you can literally feel better or feel better about yourself and then go on living your life. I've come to deal with humanity's problem of sin, the power of sin and the penalty of sin. And that teaches me that our, our greatest problem isn't always our, the obvious one to us. Nobody in this scenario is kind of like, did you hear that? He forgave him his sins. That's awesome. Oh, no one else is talking? Oh, yeah, okay. No, not even one person does. No one kind of sees it. Our need to have our sins forgiven is often to us secondary. Im- good, but not like, important, but not urgent. And, and this whole story forces us to think in a new way. This group of men think what their friend needs most is physical healing. Jesus' actions show the man, his friends, and everyone else that the greatest need is to be forgiven and restored. But the awesome thing is the story doesn't end there. If it would have, it still would have been an awesome story. It would have been an amazing, miraculous healing. But Jesus continues. It says in verse 6, a little bit of dead, dead air, dead silence, your sins are forgiven. There's religious leaders there. There are Pharisees, scribes, teachers of the law, Bible teachers, people who are trying to get people to follow God's ways so that the kingdom of God will really come. They're experts in the Jewish uh, law. And it says these teachers were sitting there and they're thinking to themselves, 
How does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Matthew says, I think it's, maybe it's Luke who says, he, they mumble to themselves under their breath. What did he just say? How could he talk like that? How dare he? See, the teachers of the law, they're watching this whole thing unfold. And it's not until Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, then a huge red flag gets waved. And in their mind, they don't say it right away. They're kind of just like, they're shocked and almost in disbelief. What did I just hear? Because Jesus spoke as if he's forgiving someone's sins. Now to us, we might think, well, that's kind of what Jesus does. I've read the Gospels. I've heard that in church. You've got to take all that out of your head and out of your mind. Because in first century Judaism, there's only one person who can forgive sins. And that is God. Some people might think, well, I heard that there were priests in the Old Testament. Don't they forgive sins? Nope. It's not like Roman Catholic priests today that have a faulty idea that they can be the conduit of forgiveness for people. Priests in the Old Testament were people who set up the Levitical system, said when you sin, if you do these things, then you'll be in a position such that if God chooses to forgive you, he will. But no priest ever said, oh, you did X, Y, and Z. Oh, I declare you have your sins forgiven. That wasn't done. You have no authority to do that. Only God can forgive sins. Why? Why can only God forgive sins? Because only the person who is wronged has the authority to forgive the offense. If I were to walk down off the stage and punch Michael Marsden right in the face, just like, bam! And he would crumple, because I'm just tremendously strong. So we would crumple in the aisle, bleeding. Why did you do that, Jeff? And then Wendy just touched my arm and said, Jeff, I want you to know I forgive you for hitting Michael. Michael's reaction would be, wait a second, no, no, that's not how it works. Jeff hit me. So no one else has any prerogative or right to forgive Jeff. That's only something I can do. And see, the Bible says that while we can sin against other people, all sin, behind all sin, even the sin that just touches, that we think that only appears to us to touch other people's lives, all sin ultimately is against God. That's why in Psalm 51, after David rapes Bathsheba, after he has this whole plot of deception to get her husband killed. And then the prophet Nathan is sent to him and he's confronted. And Psalm, he, he writes this Psalm 51. And four verses in, David writes these words. He says, he's talking to God. It's a Psalm of confession. And he says, against you, you only have I sinned. He's talking to God. All the stuff that he did, rape, murder, uh, cover up conspiracy. And then when he's confessing it, he's saying to God, against you, only you did I sin in all this. Now that's literally not fact, like it's not true. We can say, well, no, he sinned against you know, the whole nation of Israel, against Bathsheba, against Uriah, against uh, people in his army and, and, and everyone who's involved in the cover-up. But David, this is kind of Jewish hyperbole in action where David is trying to speak to a larger truth that yes, at the end of the day, while he committed sins against all these people, ultimately his sin is against God. 
So it wouldn't even be enough if he went to some of those people and said, would you forgive me? And they said yes, because there's another person behind the sin that he needs to get cleansing and forgiveness from, and that is God. So David understood this, that all sin is ultimately sin against God. And so that means the only person who has the authority to forgive and to declare someone sinless is someone is God. Other people can point you towards the source of that forgiveness. Other people can show you the steps you need to take to procure that forgiveness, but no one can actually forgive sins. So their question, you know, I, I've been reading this, you know, God's book to us for a, since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. I'm pretty sure one of the most basic principles is who can forgive God alone but, but God alone? No one, no one other than God can forgive. Only God can forgive. They're right. That's, that's the right question. That's right. That's the right, the right question. And their answer and their hunch is correct, but it puts them in a bind because Jesus has now just said, I forgive you of your sins. Now what do we do with that? It's at least, I mean, at the least, it's a violation of Exodus 27. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Or you will not, um, better translation in Hebrew is, you shall not carry the name of the Lord your God in vain. And it means you won't walk around talking as if you believe in your life is surrendered, representing God, but live in a way that is demeaning, rude, anti-God. So the very least that Jesus is doing, there's a few other scriptures that you can have in the discussion notes for home groups or, or sorry, small groups or conversations, there are, um, it's, but it's at least a violation of one of the core commands. Jesus is at least seemingly carrying God's name in vain. He's presenting himself as a teacher of God, some kind of prophet, rabbi figure, but he's, in God's name, declaring the forgiveness of sins. We're going to see, in short order in Mark, this begins to escalate the plot against Jesus to get him killed by the Jewish authorities. Because that's actually the right response to someone who, say, who says these things. Read, you can read about that in the text. So verse 8, Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Right? Imagine if you were like mumbling to yourself, or you were like, I don't think he can say that. Imagine if Jesus turned to you and he's like, Why are you thinking that? Like, Did I say that out loud? Oh, what? It's caught red-handed, right? Why are you thinking these things? And then he asks a question. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? What's easier? Jesus poses a hypothetical question just to the religious people who are thinking, only God can forgive sins, what's he doing? And the question's really brilliant. Well, what's easier to say? The easier thing to say would be, your sins are forgiven. That's easy to say because there's no real way to verify that it's happened or not. I can say that and kind of be like, yeah, your sins are forgiven. And no one can, it's not, it, you can't falsify it. If I say to someone who's paralyzed, you know, I have the power to heal you, get up and walk, and they don't, that's objective evidence that I actually can't heal them, or, or, or my words don't carry power, or um, God has chosen not to heal them. So what's easier to say? It's easier to say your sins are, for, are forgiven. So, Jesus, maybe looks 
in the eye of some of these religious leaders for a little bit. And he says, but I want you to know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. So he looks back down at the guy. He's paralyzed and he says, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and walk home. And it says, he got up, he took his mat, and walked out in full view of them. And I imagine that it was just dead quiet, just like right now. He gets up, he's emotionally overwhelmed and in shock, takes up the cloth of the mat, and just walks out of the room. And Jesus is looking at the religious leaders, they're looking at Jesus, everyone's looking, what do we do? And then some guy at the back just starts doing the slow clap. And then people are like, yeah, that's actually pretty amazing. And then they start praising God. Maybe they break out in song. And I think when all of that was happening, it's still just Jesus and the religious leaders looking at each other. It's all happening around them. But the religious leaders are like, oh, this is the bridge too far. And Jesus is looking at them. And the whole the place is now erupted. It's like a celebration. It's like amazing. The friends on the roof have come down. They're outside with their friend. They're you know, congratulating him, they're hugging, they're dancing, but Jesus and the religious leaders are just staring at each other. And it's this tense moment. What's going to happen? What, where, what's, where is this going? Not just like right now, but like what's going to happen to Jesus? He has no problem confronting the most respected religious leaders of his day. And so now the crowd's amazed. Now they get what they, what they were wanting. That, that, okay, that's, that's flashy. That's awesome. That's a miracle. That's a healing. They're excited. They're pumped. Jesus stares down the religious leaders. He's healed this guy with a word alone. Doesn't touch him. He just, tell, he just commands him to get up. His body is made fit and instantly well, and he begins moving out into the world to a whole new life. Who knows how the scene plays out? No matter how it does, as people begin to leave or as more people come for healing, the religious leaders don't seem to say anything more it's awkward, it's tense. This is the first of many confrontations that Mark's going to highlight in the second chapter of Jesus beginning to rub the religious leaders the wrong way because he's essentially proclaiming, I'm God, come in human form, who can forgive sins but God alone. Only God can, right. Your sins are forgiven. By what authority, oh, paralyzed man, stand up. You can go home now. And he does. Okay, this is painting people into a corner who want to just think of Jesus as a prophet or as a good person or as a new rabbi or a new spin on some religious teaching. This is, this is, an, this is an interruption to everything that they've known. This is an insurrection to the status quo. I think it's an amazing story. It's, it's one of my favorite in all of the Gospels, certainly in the early parts of Mark. And I think it puts before us six questions. You don't need to respond to all these questions. I want to put these six questions in front of you and then let God, through his Holy Spirit, just imprint one of them, maybe two, on your heart. And then this week I want you to respond to them. The first question that I think the text puts in front of us is this. Where are you paralyzed? In all the healing stories, we're supposed to see ourselves, first and foremost, in this place of the person who's actually in need of the miracle. Where are you paralyzed in your life? Where are you stuck? 
you're paralyzed by fear, you're paralyzed by insecurity, you're paralyzed by a sense of hopelessness, you're paralyzed because of the words of other people, you're paralyzed because of something that has been done to you in the recent past, in the distant past. Where are you paralyzed? By doubt, by a lack of faith? See, Jesus didn't come to keep stuck people stuck. Salvation means deliverance out of a confined space to a space where people can move and actually begin to get traction in their life and begin to step into what God has for them. Where are you paralyzed? Because Jesus wants to bring you movement and freedom and direction. Number two, do you have friends who will carry you to Jesus? And do you have friends that will carry you to Jesus when you can't get to Jesus yourself because you're paralyzed? by anger, fear? Do you have people who will sacrifice time, energy, money, and at great cost to themselves, carry you to Jesus in prayer? They will lift you up before Jesus. They will fight for you. They will struggle for you, even when you can't do it yourself. Even when you're in a dark place. Even when you can't get traction, they will help you. This guy didn't have an army. He had four friends. And four was all it took. But there were four people who were determined to get their friend and and place him before Jesus. Do you have four people like that in your life? Because you need to. You need to have a, a small little group of people who will say, I will pray for you consistently. And especially when you feel stuck and when you feel like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling and nothing's working and nothing feels like it's ever going to work, I'm, you can call on these people and say, I am stuck. I got nothing. Will you just carry me to Jesus in prayer? Third question. Are you one of those friends for someone else in your life? Are you one of the four for someone else? You can't be one of the four for every person in this church. Maybe not even everybody in your friendship circle. That, but are you, are you on that call list? Are you on that email list? To, to one or two people in your life. Because we should be as Christians. We, we should have a few key relationships in our life that we say, you know what? I want you to be able to call me and I will, I will lift you up in prayer. You let me know. People who are paralyzed and stuck should never feel like, I guess this is just where I'm at, where I'm going to be, and it's like a journey that I have to just kind of endure myself. God wants to surround you with a handful of people who are willing to carry you. But we also have to be those people. We have to be on the lookout. We have to have a sensitivity that says, I think this person's stuck. I want to take them up for coffee and say, how can I pray for you? How can I support you? How can I help? And, and if you're one of those people, if you're going to do that with your, with your kids, with your, with your grandkids, with your friend, with a coworker, with a neighbor, you also have to not give up because there's going to be times where you're going to want to give up. There's going to be times where you're like, I'm totally interested in getting this person to Jesus. I'm going to pray for them, and then life's going to get hard. And like the guys who show up, and there's no room, and the lineup is huge, they could have been like, there's no point. Let's just turn back. Like, we're never going to see Jesus today. They didn't, though. They said, they said we're not going to give up until we get blessed. It's like Jacob wrestling with God. I'm not... I didn't come here to get turned away, so I'm not going to leave until God blesses me. We brought our friend this far, we're going all the way. You've got to not give up. There's some people here I know in different areas of your life, in different relationships, in different situations, 
You are, you're a thread breaking away from giving up, from turning around and saying, and just sinking back into hopelessness. And you need to feel the weight of this narrative that is saying you, you can't. Figure, go off script, bust, bust some roofs, do, do something, do something different, but keep going, keep fighting for your friend. Keep fighting for your child. Keep fighting for your coworker. Keep fighting for yourself. F- fight and bring these people before God. Number four, are you willing to renovate your life in order to connect people to Jesus? Are we willing to look at how we spend our time and energy and money and say, you know, if we made these adjustments here, if I went without this here, this person could have more. Um, are we willing to do that? Because this isn't really a story about a roof being destroyed. It's a story of accommodation. Uh, they said, this, the current house isn't going to work for my friend, so we're going <laughs> to renovate it to make ease of access. And we, and we need to do the same thing. 2016, I think there's going to be a lot of projects, big and small, we're going to do for this, for this facility, for example. And that's going to cost money. And costing money means money that we would have preferred to maybe spend here, doesn't, and it goes to here, but it's going to happen so that this facility can accommodate more people so that we facilitate mission and ministry. And that's, that's really, really important. And that's another question I think the story puts in front of us. Fifth one, do you see your greatest need? Not your presenting issue, not the thing that on the surface you're like, oh, if God took this away, it'd be totally fine. God says, I might take it away, but you st- actually still wouldn't be fine. Because your deepest need is forgiveness. Your deepest need is to have your sins put away. Jesus could have stopped after saying, sons, your sins are forgiven. Would have been cause for celebration. Because more than any other presenting problem in your life, you need Jesus' forgiveness. Don't dismiss or ignore that. There's lots of evidence in the Gospels that many people came to listen to Jesus long enough to get a healing and then say, this is great, thank you, I got what I came for, and now I live my whole life. They're not interested in becoming a disciple of Jesus. They just simply want to extract from Jesus that which makes their life better and then leave. And there are tragic stories like that all throughout the Gospels. Don't miss your greatest need. And the last question is, do you see who Jesus is? Do you see who he is? Mark wants us to see who Jesus is. Not a great prophet. Not even just a king, lowercase king. Not a new teacher, that, but more. Not even a mere man. He's not just a man. Who can, first, who can forgive sins but God alone? No one. And that means if Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, that he's no mere man. He is God come in human form, and that changes everything. That is now the centerpiece from which we have to rethink the concentric circles of our worldview, of our life, of our behavior, of the nature of reality, where are the telos of reality. Where is all of reality even going? Jesus is putting himself at the center of all those things and saying, you won't understand it until you start with me and work out from there. You won't understand me, you won't see me if you picture your life and then you just kind of see me as, a, as an addendum or as an accessory to that. You have to start with me. I am God, come in human form. Everything now needs to be recalibrated around me. 
And that means everybody in this room needs to be continually handing the, the throne of their hearts over to Jesus because He is the true King. He is the true Lord. He is the real Savior. And when we do that, what we discover is that He takes us from our places of paralysis. He takes us from our places of confinement. He takes us from our places of limitation and He opens up for us new possibility. This is a King who doesn't oppress and suppress His subjects but empowers them to an entirely new way of life. Do you see who he is? Don't miss it. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the one we exalt. God, may, the, may this text just, uh, just tumble around in our heads and hearts this week. May it haunt us, may it challenge us, may it inspire us, may you use these questions to have us do work with you, to come before you for a great healing and for a new life, God. We love you as we praise you now. May our praise comes, come from hearts and lips of people who are astonished at your glory and your goodness. Amen.